Welcome to the Church at Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. This week, our lead pastor, Mike Yearly, begins a brand new series titled The Marriage Matrix. He starts with a study of Genesis chapters 1 through 3 with a message titled The Vision and the Vertical. Hey, I want to thank you for uh, praying for my voice. Uh, the bad news is nothing's really changed. So I, I think you need to get the sin out of your life. I'm not sure what the problem is. But uh, uh, anyway, or maybe the sin out of my life. Huh? But uh, anyway, I go to see the UCLA specialist again on Monday. And so that's the next, next version. And so uh, just thank you for your prayers and continue to be praying, especially on Monday as we go. So, uh, hey, are you ready for this new series? Yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, you know, whether you're single or married, you're going to find this, I think, really uh, speaks to you um, as we spend the next five weeks in the, in the marriage matrix. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get going. All right, let's go. Father, thank you so much for this chance to be together. Thank you uh, for just a place to come to worship, Lord, to bring our kids, to seek you. Um, thank you for this time of teaching. We get to gather around your word to see what you would say about this uh, most important relationship of all of life if we're married, and that's marriage. And Lord, so we pray that you give us wisdom, give us eyes to see new things perhaps we've never seen before. Remind us of old things we've known but have forgotten, need to remember. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, he'd been looking forward to this for years. It was, his, uh, it was time for a sabbatical. He was a university prof at a major university. And after a certain level of time, the profs would get a sabbatical, and it was a whole year off, a year to reflect, a year to refresh, a year to write. And so uh, the time came, he packed up his wife and their four young children. They headed off to the island of Oahu for a whole year. It didn't take him long to fall into a great rhythm. Uh, he would get up every morning, he would go running on the beach, and then he would come back and help his wife get their two oldest uh, children, elementary school age children, get them ready for school. They'd dress them every day in their shorts and bare feet, and off they would to, to school. That's the way school should be. That's the way church should be. <laughs> anyway. And then he would, he, would read, he would jump on his little red Honda motor scooter. He'd ride through the cane fields off to this little isolated office in the middle of the cane fields, and there all morning he would write. No interruptions, no email, no phone calls, no appointments. A little before noon, he'd hop back on his scooter, ride back to the house. His wife would be ready. She'd have a picnic lunch, and their two preschool children, they'd all hop on board this one little red Honda motor scooter. He would sit in the front. She'd sit in the back. One child went between, one child on his left knee, and they would head off through the, these back roads, uh, country roads of, uh, of Hawaii for the coast. They'd go real slow, about five miles an hour. It'd take a while, but they finally end up at this deserted beach. And they would get to a deserted beach where this river, freshwater river, came in. They'd, they'd hike about 200 yards down, down the beach, and they would have lunch together every day as a family. And after they'd have lunch, their two little preschool children would toddle off to the river that was right there by the ocean where they'd play in the sunlight and the streams. And mom and dad would have about two hours for un- uninterrupted conversation. It was the first time this had ever happened in their marriage, and it was the deepest year, most amazing year of their marriage life. They would talk, they started talking that year about more superficial things, just their past, uh, things were going on, their family back home, life experiences, but as the year went on, they began to share at a deeper and deeper level, and pretty soon they were sharing more of their internal worlds, their hopes, their fears, their dreams. They began to share things they had never shared with another person. It was the most amazing experience they'd ever had. 
They, looking back, they said it was more amazing than any of the outward adventures they'd ever had traveling around the world or different kinds of things was the inward adventure of sharing their lives. It wasn't all easy. At times, there were tough topics. There were old, unresolved conflicts they'd never worked through, and they had to work through those. There were times they had to take risks. There were times they shared embarrassing moments. There were, it was not always easy, but what they found is as they shared their hearts and they shared their wounds that somehow, strangely, those wounds were healed. And so when it came to the end of that year, they didn't want it to stop. They had to go back to the mainland. They knew it couldn't go on the same way. He had his regular job to go back to. She would have her regular routine. But they didn't want to lose the closeness that had developed. And so they made a commitment from that point on that they would carve out time for this, what they called deep conversation. And so they did over the coming years. And if you were to know them now, they are, their children that were once in preschool are, are now grown. Um, they're full grown. But if you live nearby them, you could look down the road, and from time to time, you'd see that little red Honda coming out, and he and his wife jumping on that scooter and heading off for a slow drive out in the country roads where they could talk. Maybe a, a, a rain-soaked evening and a pouring, drenching rain, they'd jump in their car, and they'd head off just for a drive in the rain where they could connect and have that deep conversation. You know, today we're entering this new series. It's a five-week series. It's called The Marriage Matrix. Both words are important. Word marriage. Uh, Jesus was once asked a question about marriage in Matthew chapter 19. And he said, you know, if you want to understand marriage, if you want to understand what marriage is all about, if you want to understand God's vision for marriage, he said, you have to go back to the beginning. You have to go back to the first man, the first woman. You have to go back to the garden. You have to go back to the events that happen in Genesis 1 to 3 if you want to understand God's vision for marriage. That's the first word, marriage. Second word, matrix. A matrix is a substance. It's a source. It's a situation out of which something else emerges. So, for example, there in your note sheet, page 1, page 2, there in your note sheet, <coughs> a couple definitions. American Heritage Dictionary. So the matrix is a situation, it's a surrounding substance within which something originates, it develops, or is contained. Compact Oxford English Dictionary says matrix is an environment or a material in which something, out of which something develops. So a matrix is a source, it's a situation, it's a substance out of which something else emerges. So for example, in biology, a matrix refers to the substance in which tissue cells reside. In anatomy, a matrix refers to the certain formative cells that create uh, like your fingernails, your toenails, or your teeth. These are the cells out of which your teeth or fingers, they emerge. In geology, if you were out exploring and you came across a fossil, you came across a crystal, you came across a gem, and you extracted it from the rock or the material it was, it was kept in, that material would be called the matrix, the matrix out of which it was taken. If you're in business or in math, you know, uh, it often refers to like a, a grid or a complicated set of relationships uh, out of which a reality emerges. So a matrix is a substance. It's a situation. It's a source out of which something else emerges. And so Jesus says, if you want to understand God's vision for marriage, you have to go back to the beginning. 
you have to go back to the source. You have to go back to the situation and the events that happen in Genesis 1 to 3. You have to go back to the matrix of marriage out of which all marriage, the good, the bad, and the ugly, flows. If you want to understand God's vision for marriage, what went wrong with marriage, and how do we get back on track in marriage. And so that's what we're going to do. The next five weeks, we're going to spend some time in Genesis 1 to 3. We're going to be looking at some of the key statements and the key events that happened there that, uh, that shape and inform our marriages today. Now, if you're single or if you're married, uh, uh, obviously this is for you. You know, obviously there's immediate application. I don't have to convince you. You're already getting nervous. Um, if, uh, but if you're single, I want to speak to you for just a second, because I, I know there's some of you that are probably like, oh, crud, you know, five weeks on marriage, it's like, what a drag, what's happening at Shepherd of the Hills? You know, maybe Cornerstone, uh, heard, heard, heard Francis is on a roll, let's just go on down there and check it out, or maybe, you know, NFL's playing in the morning, uh, but uh, let, me, let me speak to you, honestly, that, um, that in some ways, this series is more important for you that it is for even those of us who are married. Because the first step towards capturing God's vision for marriage and experiencing that in your life, which the vast majority of singles provides the right person, the right place, and the right way, want to get married. That, that the first step is to have a clear vision of what marriage is about. Because without a clear vision, you don't know who you should be looking for. And without a clear vision, you don't know who you need to become. You see? And so if you're single here, this is the same material I would teach. Uh, this is the same sort of material I would teach if I was doing a large singles ministry. So, so don't let the name fool you, okay? So whether you're single or whether you're married, it's for, uh, for all of us. Now, so here's what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to start off. In fact, there's a section there on your note sheet called The Marriage Matrix, um, back to the beginning, Genesis 1 to 3. And what I want to do is just do a quick flyby of some of the key statements and key um, events that happened in, in Genesis 1 to 3 that help us set up this series. And, um, <laughs> and then we're going to come back at the end and talk about the first step that we need to take to make our marriages what God intended, if, you're, if you want to do that. If, you're, if you have a bad marriage, you just want to stay there, that's up to you. But if you, if you want to recapture the vision, then I'm going to tell you the first step today. All right? So let's, let's jump in. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. If you don't have your Bible, um, hopefully look on with someone who, who does. Um, if you're new, we have Bibles out there, real inexpensive you can buy, and you'll, you'll need it every week. So Genesis 1, 26. Now let me say this as we get started that um, we're going to be looking at the events that happen in Genesis 1 to 3. And different Christians see these events differently. For example, um, there, there are many Christians who see the seven days of creation in Genesis chapter 1 as literal 24-hour days uh, that God created the earth in seven days. And so if you were to ask them, well, then why does the world seem to be 13 billion years old, you know, you know from, from what we know scientifically, what they would uh, often say is, well, um, God built the earth with apparent age built in, which makes a lot of sense. If you stop and think like Adam, the very first day that he was created, he looked like he was 30 or 40. He didn't look like he was, uh, you know, a newborn. 
And so Adam was, built, was created with age built in. The universe could be that way, the same way, all right? So there's one group that see it that way. There's another group of Christians who equally love God, equally honor his word, who say, no, that we believe these seven days of creation are like seven ages, uh, seven period, longer periods of time, seven creative periods. Um, and, uh, and this is not a new theory. It goes back to St. Augustine, one of the greatest thinkers in church history back in the 4th century uh, A.D. And, uh, and, and it works because the, 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 the word for, uh, for day, the seven days, is the Hebrew word yom. And uh, it's much like our word for day. So we can talk about day as a 24-hour period, but we can talk about day as a period of time in those days that kind of thing. It's a longer period. So, so both, you know, both are options. Um, but here's the point, that whether you see it as a seven-day, actual literal seven times, or whether you see it as seven longer, Jesus is really clear in the New Testament that these events that are described in Genesis 1 through 3 are real events. They are not mythology. They are not legend. They are actual historical events. And that's what's important for us to be clear on as we go into this series that the time frame is not as important as whether they really happen. And Jesus, for example, in his teaching on marriage and divorce in chapter 19 of Matthew, he refers to that very much. This is a historical event, and so does the rest of the New Testament, several events in Genesis uh, 1 through 3. So having said that, let's jump in. We're just going to do this quick flyby now and see some of the highlights uh, about marriage. So we're going to start at chapter 1 in verse uh, 26. Okay, so it says, uh, so God says, uh, let us make man, this is the sixth day of creation, and God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created man in his image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, there's two things I want you to catch from this. The first thing is that you and I were created as male and female uh, to be like God. And this is very important. You and I were created to be like God. We were created in his image. In other words, we are like him. We are like him in his character. When Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman were created, they were created like God. Their, their character was like God. Extremely important we catch that. That's going to change by the end of today. <laughs> but they were like God. They thought like God. They, they reacted like God would react in a situation. Um, they, they didn't know conflict in their relationship. There was no bitterness in their relationship. There was no anger in their relationship. There was no revenge. They were like God. They were created in his likeness. That's the first thing. The second thing I want you to catch is that they were created to rule. That the first man and the first woman were created to rule planet Earth. You and I as human beings were created to be kings and queens. We were created, the first man, the first woman, were to be the first king and queen of planet Earth. And very much this plays into our vision for marriage. And we will talk about both of these things in the coming weeks. Next week we will talk about character and the part that being like God plays in a, in a growing marriage. We'll talk about what it means to restore the image of God in our lives as it applies to our marriage. 
In the last week, in the fifth week, we will talk about what does it mean to, as a husband and wife, rule as a king and a queen in our marriage. That's our calling in life. Remember when Jesus said that when he comes back again, we will rule with him. We were designed to rule, and we are being restored to that rulership now, and we will be in full rule then, okay? You see, your marriage is much bigger than you. There is a purpose for your marriage. There is a ruling purpose in your marriage to rule in a certain part of God's kingdom, part of his movement. And we'll come back to that in, in the fifth week. Okay, so that's the first thing. We're created to be like him. We're created to rule. Now let's move to chapter two. <laughs> in chapter two, we have more information. We have more information about the creation uh, of the first man and the first woman. We have uh, more information about the first home that God designed, this garden. Uh, we have more information about God's vision <laughs> for their relationship. So let's look at chapter 2 and verse 7. Um, it says, so the, Lord God, uh, the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and the man became a living being. So the first thing that happens here is that God takes the, the soil and he rearranges the chemical elements to create a physical body. Uh, but it's, of course, it's a physical body, uh, like you see in a morgue or something like that. And so then God breathes life in, and, and he becomes the first living human being. Now, the passage goes on to tell us about that the next God created the woman, the, the first woman. Now, the interesting thing is, and this is very significant, when God creates the woman, I don't know if you ever thought of this, he does not create her like he created the man. He doesn't pick up another pile of dirt and make a second person and then introduce them. What he does is he takes the first man and he puts him to sleep, sort of a spiritual anesthesia. He puts him to sleep and he takes part of his side, his flesh, his blood, his bones, and from the side, from his DNA, he creates the woman. And it's very, very significant. I want you to catch this. From the one, God created two. That's what I want you to catch. From the one, God created two. Okay? And so now, after he does this, he brings the woman to the man, and the man gets what's going on. By the word, the word um, Adam means man. In, in Hebrew, uh, Adam is man. And so when we say Adam, it's man. It's, they're interchangeable. So he, he takes her to Adam, or the first man, and, and he introduces this creation. And right away, the man realizes this dynamic. He realizes that from the one have become two. And so let's look at what he says this in verse 23. So the man says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In other words, we're made from the same stuff. We're made from the same DNA. And she will be called woman, which in Hebrew is the word isha, for she was taken out of man, which is ish. So from Ish comes Isha, you see? See, there's a un, use a un, from the one came the two. Now, verse 24, says, because of this, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Uh, <coughs> marriage is about a leaving. It's about a leaving of our family of origin, and, there we're being, and then he says, we'll be united to his wife, and catch this, they will become one flesh. So from the one came the two in order that the two can become one. 
You see this? Now, I want you to catch this. This is what the heart of marriage is all about. It's about a shared oneness, body, soul, and spirit. And this is why sex outside of marriage is such a travesty because it's trying to take one form of oneness without the whole form of oneness. And when we try to take part of the, we, part of the oneness without the whole oneness, we actually undercut our ability for true intimacy down the line with our marriage partner. And so it's a ripping off of one another. It's a stealing from one another. So from the one come the two so that the two can become one. Now I want you to catch this. What this means is that when it says a man shall leave his, his father, he's, what it's saying, it's saying it's a shorthand way of saying that when we're married, we leave every other relationship behind in priority. It's, so this is the Bible's way of saying that if you're married, the most important relationship in your life is with your spouse. There is no higher priority. There is no higher person relationally than your spouse. Now sometimes this, when we don't understand this, it really causes problems in our marriage. How many of you have known or experienced this in your life? Uh, a, a wife who can't tie her, uh, cut her ties with her mother. Her mother is more important than her husband. A, a, a husband that what his parents think is more important than what his wife thinks. The wife who, her relationship with her friends, she's closer with her friends than she is with her husband. She confides in them all the things she, she can't confide in her husband. Uh, the husband who spends all of his time with his buddies at the softball park, he's closer with the buddies than he is with his wife. How about this one? The parents that are closer to their children than they are to one another. And all of a sudden, the kids leave, and there's no relationship left. You see? You see, if you're married, God's vision for you is that this relationship was designed to be your primary relationship. It's all about oneness. And in weeks three and four, we're going to delve into this. What does it look like to be one in body, soul, and spirit? What does that look like? How do we get there? Now, here's the thing. What I want you to catch is if this is not true in our life, if you're married and this is not true in our lives, if we're closer to any other person than we are to our spouse, all it's saying is, for whatever reason, that we are out of alignment with the vision. Now, there may be reasons or whatever. In fact, if you stop and think of it, this is what often happens when a marriage goes bad is because we're not properly aligned. There's, the relationship isn't working. It's too painful. What do we do? We look outside of the marriage for that relationship. It, it might be a woman with her friends, a guy with her friends. It might be the guy with his job. It could be uh, an affair. Either person has an affair. We're looking for the relationship we were designed to have inside the marriage. We're looking for it outside and so what we have to understand is marriage is about oneness. It's our top relationship. It's our top priority. It's the way God designed it. And so the goal for us, if we're followers of Jesus, is to pursue that alignment. You see, what does it take for us to get there? Now, we're also told in chapter 2 that they had this amazing place to live. It was called the Garden of Aden in, in Hebrew. It's called a place in the east, Garden of Aden. We know it as Garden of Eden. 
And, uh, you know, amazing place. It was uh, God's designed this, this, this garden for the newlyweds. We're told that it's got uh, this river rushing through it, beautiful river, all these trees, fruit trees, beautiful, delicious fruit. Um, so they got this beautiful place. And so, um, so they're, they're these perfect people like God, designed to rule, um, created from one together as one. Uh, everything is hitting on all track, perfect home, perfect environment. And so in chapter two and verse 25, let's look at what he says. He says, and the man and wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Isn't that awesome? See, this is a picture of God's view of marriage. His picture was two people like him coming together, being one in perfect freedom, and there was no need to hide. There was no shame. There was no need to defend myself because no one was going to attack me. It was the perfect place of safety. It was the perfect place to be. This is the vision. If you're single today, this is the vision. What kind of person would it take for you to be in relationship with to create that kind of vision? Some people have the capacity, some people don't. What kind of person do you need to become to create that kind of vision? You see, in your life, perfect freedom. This is great. They're young, they're healthy, they're beautiful, and they're naked. And God says, have a great time. Now, isn't that that awesome? Isn't that awesome, you see? We're told everything that God created was good, and when he got down to sixth day, he said, it is very good. And he said, you're just, you're just naked, and, you're just, and this is wonderful. It's the way I like it. Have a great time. It's a pic- perfect picture of the freedom of relationship. No need to hide. No need to cover up. No need to defend. But of course we know the vision didn't last. <laughs> so let's close in prayer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's just go home with that vision. Let's just... Try it out for a couple days to see how it goes. <laughs> Close the blinds. No. Um, okay, so the vision didn't last. Uh, now, how long chapter two lasted, we don't know. Uh, was chapter two, was that a week? Was it a month? Was it a year? Five years? How long did they live in that freedom before they decided to rebel. You remember that in the garden, we're told, this garden, there were these two trees, the tree of life and immortality, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The reason it's called that is because up to this point in their lives, they had only known good. (laughs) Up to this point, they'd only known good. There had been no evil. If you said, "Uh, how do you feel about the problem of evil? They go, what problem? What is evil? We only know good. And so God told them that uh, their lives were really dependent on him and their relationship. And if they would continue to pursue him, they would continue to enjoy this life that he would create them for. But if they chose to disobey, which was a free choice, he created three more, then there would become a thing called death. And this whole freedom that they would designed to experience, they would lose that. And so there was the true, and that they would come to know evil for the first time in experience. They'd only known good if they chose to cut themselves off from the Lord of life, the Lord of truth, the Lord of all that's right and good and source of everything good in life, if we choose to cut ourselves off, all that's left is death. 
And so the choice was theirs. And how long they lived in that life of freedom, we don't know. But we know that at some point, they decided to opt out. They decided that they thought they knew better than the creator. They thought that they could do life on their own. They thought that they could go on their own. And so, you know, you know so, so they, they, they disobey. And here's the thing. They thought that they could do life on their own and keep their relationship as it is. This was a mistake. You see, when we cut ourselves off from the source of all that's good and right and true, we change. And we no longer have the capacity to experience the relationship we were designed to be and experience of. And so they, they rebelled. And so uh, the moment they did, everything changed. Not only the relationship with God changed, their relationship with themselves changed. And the relationship with one another changed. You see, there is a relationship between our, our vertical relationship with God and our horizontal relationship with one another. And when the vertical goes bad, so does the horizontal. See? And they understand that. So let's see what happens in chapter 3. So, of course, they disobey. And then in verse 9, um, the Lord, God, calls to the man, and he says, um, where are you? And he says, um, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. <clears throat> wow, that verse uh, packs a punch. <clears throat> I heard you in the garden and I hid. This God who had been the source of their life, this God who had been the source of their fulfillment, this, this God who had been the source of their deepest joy, this God that was, they, they were created to be in his image and be in fellowship with, that was to be the, the, the source of their deepest happiness, this God that they used to love and run to, their God, they're now they're running from. And the reason is because the moment they disobeyed, something broke deep inside of them. We call it in theology the fall. Something broke in the human heart. And in that moment of disobedience, they no longer were like God anymore. And they sensed it. And they felt it. It was intuitive. Some, have you ever done this in your life? You, you're tempted to do something wrong. You give into it. And the moment you give in, it's like, oh, could I get that thing back? You, something's wrong inside. It's like, oh, something's broken. Something just broke inside of me. And that's what happened on a scale that none of us will ever be able to experience. Because the fall they went from not knowing any evil to knowing evil with inside of them was like night and day. And the moment it happened, Adam knew it, and he knew he had to hide. He had to cover up. His instinct was to cover up. Now, the interesting thing is that not only did the relationship lose the relationship with God, not only did he break inside and become a different person, but instantly the relationship with his wife broke. And God comes, and he says, I, uh, verse 10, uh, Adam says, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Uh, <laughs> no one had to tell him. It was intuitive. He knew something had broken. And he says, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Just pointing out that this is what happened, right? And look what Adam does. He, does he say, God, you're right, you got me. You told me, you were clear, you warned me. I am so sorry. No. He throws his wife under the truck. 
Now, this will be the first, uh, first time in human history. It will not be the last. <laughs> I want you to think about this. I want you to think about, I want you to think about this. This couple had known perfect freedom. This couple had known perfect love. This woman was bone of his bone, flesh of his uh, flesh, created for oneness, the love of his life. He was designed to be her leader and her lover and protector, and she had never known anything but good from this man. And the moment sin came in, he threw his wife under the truck, and he betrayed her trust. He used her as a human shield. He says, not me, it's her. Look what he says. He says, uh, the man said, hey, it's not me, God. It's the woman. <laughs> the, woman that, the woman that you put here. That God, now that I think about it, it's really not my issue. It's really your issue. You made a very bad choice. You, you were supposed to create a help me. Look what you created. This cunning, deceiving, beautiful seductress. It's, it's really not my fault. What, what do you expect, God? Right? That's what he says. He throws her under the truck. It's like, like shoot her, not me. Hey, it's not me. Shoot her. Right here. In fact, I'll put her right in front of me. This, this is tragic. This is tragic, men. I mean, this, this is tragic. This couple that was designed to be oneness are now sacrificing one another instead of sacrificing themselves. And you know what? It wasn't just him. It was her. She'd fallen too. And so he turns to the woman in verse 13. He says, so what is this that you've done? Does she say, oh, God, I'm so sorry. You told me about the tree thing. Satan came, you know, I, I knew I shouldn't. Uh, no. No, she does denial too. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Was that true? Yes, it was true. It was only half the story. There's no admission of responsibility here. There's no owning. And what we see here is the first act in this couple, we see the first act of denial we see the first act of rationalization. We see the first act of attack in the human race. They had never known this prior to this. This couple had only known good in their relationship. Their relationship was now broken and it will never be the same. In modern terms, they had just become dysfunctional. And can I tell you something? It is hard to create a functional marriage with two dysfunctional people. And that is the situation that we are in. And that's how we got here. Now, I have a question for you. As we, as we kind of wrap this thing up, <coughs> there's, a, there's a question there on your note sheet. <coughs> Here's my question. I want to ask, what's your vision for marriage? What's your vision in marriage? It doesn't really matter to me whether you're single or you're married. But what's your vision for marriage? You know, you know we all have a vision. We all have one. You might say, well, Mike, I don't have a vision for marriage. Yes, you do. Because if I were to say, oh, do you think a good marriage should look like this? You'd say, no, it's not quite like that. It's, like, it's more like this, you see. It's kind of like when you ask someone, where do you want to go for lunch? I don't care. 
They always care. <laughs> you say, how about In-N-Out? No, it doesn't sound very good. <laughs> how about Baja Fresh? No, Mexican's not really, no. You say, it's like, where do you want to go? I don't care. But the moment you say something, they care. <laughs> right? Preach it, brother. Yeah, preach it. That's like right there. Right there. Okay. Hey, where do you want to go on vacation? <laughs> I don't care. How about here? No, I don't think so. You see, um, so we have a vision for marriage. What's an ideal marriage? You know, it's your, your vision of an ideal is a conglomeration of people and situations and experiences. What is your vision for marriage? Whether you're single or whether you're married, what's your vision? What does a good marriage look like? What's your vision for marriage? And then the question we're going to ask in this series is, how does your vision compare to God's vision for your marriage? You know, we started the day with this great story. It's a true story of uh, the couple who go to Hawaii, a story that uh, Steve Covey tells in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's his own story about he and his wife, Sandra, and a year they spent over there. You, you read a story like that. I don't know how you respond to that, but my heart, my heart moves towards a story like that. You know, here's what I found, is that, that most of us, we have a picture of marriage something like that when we, we get married, or, or that... Um, it's kind of the experience we had when we first started dating. Like, I've, I've done a lot of weddings, and every wedding I ask a couple, so what's your story? And I hear their story. It's always an amazing story. It's always a fun story. There's only one bad story I've ever heard. And they told me a story, and I, I fought back to saying, are you kidding me? That's your story? <laughs> I don't think so. You shouldn't be getting married. That's as good as it gets. It's, you know, we need to do some work here. But, you know, every other time... Every other time, it's like, there's there's always a great story. That's why we get married. See? We get married because we think it's going to be like that all the time. (laughs) You remember those days? If you've dated seriously, you remember those days. You just want to be together. It doesn't matter what you do. You You can communicate like all the time. You're always on the cell phone. You're always texting. You're always long, big phone bills. Women suddenly become sports fans. You know, men wash the car voluntarily just to show you I love you. You remember those days. And so we have this vision of marriage. And the sad thing is along the way, for most couples, we lose the vision. And we stop even asking the question. So the question is, what is God's vision? What's your vision? So we're going to talk about that in this series. We're going to talk about character being like God, the role that plays in recapturing the image that we lost in the garden. We're going to talk about that next week, the role character plays. I have a saying, and it goes like this, it takes chemistry to start a great relationship, it takes character to make it last. We're going to talk about the role of character in a great marriage. We're going to talk two weeks on oneness, like I talked about, sexual oneness, emotional oneness, oneness of the will. What does that look like? How does that happen? What does that take? We're going to spend a week talking about ruling together. What does it mean to fulfill our divine destiny to rule as a king and queen in a marriage? What does that look like? It's going to be great. It's going to be fun. We're going to have fun every week. But you know what? What I'm about to say right now is the most important thing I'm going to say in this whole series. I want to talk to you for just a couple minutes as we wrap up. I want to talk to you about the most important step 
of recapturing the vision that God has for marriage, whether you're single or whether you're married. And the first step, the secret of rebuilding the vision is you have to restore your relationship with the vertical. You see, this is what went wrong in the garden. See, Adam and Eve thought they could we are restoring the connection with the vertical right there. Yeah. That was like a divine, I told you it was the most important point, right? That was just God just going, boom, see, pay attention, wake up in the back. You know, it's like, here we go. Okay, so, so this is what Adam and Eve got wrong. They thought they could walk away from the Lord of life and still keep their relationships strong. It's impossible. You see, because we were created for him and we, we're not filled with him and when we're not under his lordship, under his leadership, when we are not aligned, we do not have the power and the capacity to love like we were supposed to. And so the first step of creating a great marriage is not to work on the marriage, it's to work on your relationship with the vertical. Are you submitted to the leadership of the creator in your life? That's where we got off track. That's where we have to get back. And once we get that back on track, now we're in a place where he can guide and direct and empower us. It doesn't mean it's easy because marriage is hard. Relationships are hard and marriage is the hardest relationship of all. So it doesn't mean it's easy, but now you're connected to the power source that you need you have the energy to, to change, to move, to bring this thing into alignment. Does this make sense? Now, see, this is a mistake that we often make, even in Christian circles. We make this mistake. We will go to the seminars. We'll read the books. We'll talk to our friends. We'll go to counseling. We'll watch Dr. Phil. <laughs> we will do all these things to improve our marriage. And so many times we say, why isn't it helping? The reason is that we are not connected under the leadership of the creator. And so what we do is we come to God and we say, God, would you bless my marriage? God, would you lead me to the right person to marry? We want him to fix our marriage or hook us up with the right person, but we do not want him to lead our lives. And that's what goes wrong. You see, marriage is not this one little component over here. Marriage flows out of your life. If you are not right as a person, your marriage can never be right. And so it starts with coming back to, what does that look like? Okay, so if you're a single adult, you ask God to bring, will you bring me the right person? But then what do we do? We, we go out and we compromise our standards. We will date a non-believer we will date someone who claims to be a Christian or has some kind of God concept, but they're not really a growing follower of Jesus. We'll be in a relationship, we'll compromise our sexual purity. And see what happens is that, and then we say, God, it's not working. Well, you see, lordship, leadership with the creator comes before a healthy relationship horizontally. The vertical has to be right before the horizontal can be right. What's it look like in a marriage? A couple praying, God heal our marriage, God heal our marriage. But a husband and a wife that are not submitted to the leadership of the creator and allowing him to create the character in them it takes to create a great 
marriage, you see? So the first step towards experiencing God's vision for your marriage is not to get books on marriage, although as helpful as those are and important down the line. The first step is to get right, surrender our lives absolutely to the creator, to do what Adam and Eve stopped doing. That's where it has to begin. You know, um, in a couple of minutes, I'm going to have J.D. come out. He's going to sing a song. It's a song by Tim Hughes called uh, uh, Everything. And uh, it's really a prayer that God would be our everything. Here's how I want to wrap this thing up. You know, you were created for relationship. But the most important relationship in your life is not with your spouse. If you're married, your relationship with your spouse is your most important human relationship. But it's not the most important relationship. Your most important relationship is with your creator. He's the source of your life. He was the one who created you for himself. You were designed for him. And it's that that's going to bring you the ultimate joy and fulfillment in life. And when we try to make our marriage fulfill something it was never designed to fulfill, to give us ultimate happiness, we put a pressure on it it was never meant to bear. In preparation for this series, I was reading a a book by uh, Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage. He's got a great quote there on your note sheet. I want you to look at it real quick. He says, um, I believe that much of the dissatisfaction we experience in marriage comes from expecting too much from it. We want to get the largest portion of our life's fulfillment from our relationship with our spouse. Or if you're single, you just think, hey, if I could just find the right person, then my life would be happy. For the Christian, marriage is the penultimate, which means that the next to last, next to the ultimate. It's the penultimate reality rather than ultimate reality. Because of this, both of us, like in a marriage, both husband and wife, both of us can find even more meaning by pursuing God together and by recognizing that he is the one who alone can fill the spiritual ache in our souls. What both of us crave more than anything else is to be intimately close with the God who made us. If that relationship is right, then we won't make such severe demands on our marriage, asking each other, expecting each other to compensate for spiritual emptiness. You see what he's saying here? That we often look to our marriage, it's like, this is the source of my happiness. You need to make me happy. What he's saying is, no, no, no. Your marriage was never designed to make you happy. Your marriage was designed to make you holy. It's God's laboratory for growth in your life. See, it's a beautiful thing, but your source of happiness has to be deeper than your marriage. And when, it's, and when you're happy apart from your marriage, then you can be happy in your marriage. It says, my wife can't be God, and I was created with a spirit that craves God. Anything less than God, and I'll feel an ache. And so as we come to the end of this first message, we launch this, I want to give us some time to reflect about this. And I want to say, because if we don't get this one right, the rest of the series is going to be, oh, good, fun, interesting, but will you be changed by it? Probably not. Because until we get the vertical right, we don't have the power to change the horizontal. 
And so I want to give you a chance just to reflect on that. And it's a chance of, of commitment. And J.D.'s going to come. He's going to play that song, everything. It's a prayer. I'd like you to make it your prayer. Here's what I'd like you to do. If you're single here today, I would like you to use this time to reaffirm your commitment to Jesus. That you want him to be your number one. You want to be right with the creator. And, and you're looking to him be the leader of your life. You want to, in all areas of your life, come under his leadership, but especially in this area of dating. And, and if you're here and you're married, what I want you to do during this time is I want you to bring your marriage and present it to the Lord, the creator, and say, Lord, we want to do this the way you want us to do this. And we are surrendering our lives so that in this series we'll be listening with new ears. That as you show us how to be, we will be that way. We will follow you. We'll not just listen. We will listen and we'll be open to what you will lead us. So we're going to turn down the lights. J.D. is going to sing this song and then it's going to come up with a final word. Let's stand together. I hope you can be with us next week as we talk about character, secret of great relationships, and, and uh, we want to delve into what does it look like to recapture the image that we lost in the garden and how that plays out in our, in our dating and marriage relationships. May the Lord be with you this weekend and all week long. Uh, may you connect with him as the Lord and the creator of life, the source of all that's good and right and true. And as he flows into your life and the vertical is on track, may your horizontal show the fruit. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. <laughs>